Hello, and thank you for listening to Podcastle in the Sky. This is episode 13 of our series, and this time we are watching, or actually talking about, the Amazon series The Tick, and the anime One Punch Man. I am Jesse. I'm Amber. I'm Tom. And I'm William. Um, One thing that kind of interested me about these series is that in both cases, the sidekick has the more conventional superhero story. They have a revenge issue. They have a clearly defined origin. Whereas the main character, well, not actually the main character in The Tick, but the main hero has kind of absurd beginning. In the case of The Tick, we're not really clear where he came from. And in the case of um, The One Punch Man, he uh, has a completely ridiculous beginning that is so absurd, it's ridiculous within the context of his own series. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting comparison the two had. Right. Um, I yeah. mean, they're both superhero comedies, but the sidekicks are the actual superheroes. Yeah. And it also is applied in different ways, because the sidekick in One Punch Man, his kind of deadly serious superhero backstory is kind of played for laughs. It's sort of a pastiche of familiar traits, not just with superheroes, but in anime manga traditions. Like the idea of him having this kind of creator who gave him an identity. It's kind of like a Nozamo Tezuka thing. Whereas in The Tick, the backstory of Arthur is taken very seriously. Yes, but it's still also rather conventional in the sense of like the guy who seems somewhat lowly but continues go actually even uh let let me roll back the tick even says it like he's clearly on a hero's journey he even does the the rejection of the call and you know like in the going forth and so on and so forth so yeah like it's interesting like that these so-called sidekicks are the uh the ones who are the typical hero if you will I mean, I think it's a smart choice in a lot of ways in terms of, like, splitting these elements between two characters and letting them bounce off each other. We talked about this a little bit uh, in the Golgo episode when we talked about the Dread movie, because the problem with a lot of superheroes as characters, I'm making a huge generalization here, and I'm sure there are going to be comic book people. All ten of our listeners, one of them will be a comic book person and they'll be very angry, but (laughs) particularly in cinematic form, they're not very interesting. Like, the superheroes themselves are almost always the least interesting part of their own movies, Mm because they're kind of dull. And so it's good to, like, pair them up with someone where they're sort of foibles and neuroses and all, like, these weird human elements can kind of bounce off the more over-the-top superhero stuff and make it into, like, this buddy cop dynamic. Because if you just try and have the, like, one superhero character... It starts to get kind of boring, and so it's it's kind of a smart decision in that way to. And I think more more properties are kind of realizing that that dynamic needs to happen. I mean, even I haven't seen the new Thor movie, but I kind of thought about it because it's like you know, does anyone really care about Thor? Like he's not a very interesting person. There's not a lot going on in Thor's brain, but if you pair Thor up with people, he can be pretty fun. And so that's kind of like I think the direction that some of these things are going is is realizing the interpersonal dynamics can sort of save somewhat mundane or generic backstories and stuff like that. Well, for as far out as the Dick and One Punch Man gets, I mean, they have like aliens coming in and that kind of thing. It's actually not as far out as as comic books can get because there's no time travel, there's no um, uh, there's no parallel universes and that kind of thing. It's basically just super powered people fighting a lot. Like some of these super powered people are aliens, but it's just that thing over and over, and it's really just, yeah, you're right. It's the characters that you're watching for. They're also more um, working class than most superheroes. Like It's true that there are some superheroes who have relatively meager means, like Spider-Man, for example. But the Tick and Arthur, and then Saitama and Genos, live in an apartment. You know, they don't have a special secret base. They don't have a, a lot of money. They're people who live in an apartment. They get groceries. And <laughs> they also fight people in addition to living these fairly mundane lives. I think one aspect of both that I really liked, too, is the idea of superhero as, like, both of them have these, you know, um, I guess, corporate constructs of how to become a hero, how to sign up for heroism, you know, there's like entities that control the heroes 
And I like this idea of like, you know, because in, I guess you could say like the Marvel Universe or DC, you know, the heroes get together and then they create this group of heroes to hero around. And it just is so much more seen as everyday and kind of paper pushy to be a hero in The Tick and One Punch Man. Well, that was one of the things I found interesting that both The Tick and One Punch Man, they had like this... As important plot points, the regulatory mechanisms and the legal frameworks of superheroes, it's actually there. They have to have it there because when you look at the origins of the comic books, they don't actually have that. Or even in previous versions of the tech, the cartoon versions and so on, they don't even talk about like the government agencies that have to regulate superheroes. I mean, you can kind of see that for superhero comic books because they're not actually interested in it. Like, um, they either came out of the 1930s in depression and they were all about power fantasies for working class men or they came from the 60s, which is just adolescent fantasies for teenage boys. So in neither of those things is realism the actual point. But in both these shows, it's, um, they have the superhero thing, but they kind of have the semi-realistic thing. And when you inject just a teensy bit of realism, it's incredibly obvious that it is a very bad idea to have people with superpowers just running around, hitting whoever they feel like. You can't have like some kind of vigilante Wild West. And when you acknowledge that, then it's pretty obvious you have to have something. You have to have this 28th Amendment or this Hero Association or whatever. It, what's funny is the same kind of plot point is uh, like I never saw Civil War, but like that's the entire plot, you know, of Marvel Civil War, and it's treated like this incredibly grave, serious conflict. You know, is this abrogation of superhero freedom? And it's all very serious, and it's it's sort of done better probably in these shows, which even though they take it less seriously, because it sort of gets into this absurdist space where you're dealing with something that is intrinsically like a ridiculous power fantasy and then you know playing with like the bureaucratization of it and it produces you know it's just kind of naturally a weird mashup and it becomes funny that also makes me think of the conflict between tick and overkill which i found a very refreshing take on the conflict the sort of conflict that for example daredevil had with the punisher in the second season of the netflix daredevil series because the idea is i'm a hero who doesn't kill and i'm a hero who does kill and this is the big moral question but it's so untethered from reality it assumes a world where you can go after criminals with nunchucks or you can go after criminals with submachine guns and you'll get a result either way you know, it's a moral argument that has no real connection to how people could actually deal with crime in the real world. Just a moral argument entirely built on superhero conventions. Because the problem with going after with nunchucks isn't that they don't work. The problem is you only knock them out and so the bad guys come back later. And that makes sense in kind of a textual sense because the superheroes are always fighting the same bad guys over and over. But it has no relationship to actual morality and taking it so seriously. And Daredevil felt so silly. And so the Tick has Overkill come along and he argues with the Tick and the Tick is like, you know, don't do the murder. And it just works so much better for me. Yeah, no, I think it's the same because part of the reason I never saw Civil War is I was like, you're treating something so seriously that is so silly. Like, it's so silly. You know, you're you're building and, you know, you could probably, like, make it, oh, it's an allegory for this and that. But it's like this operating on superhero conventions, not really, it's not saying anything meaningful about reality. This is sort of the problem I had with Winter Soldier, too, which, like, teases saying something, but is, like, too muddled to actually commit. And so you have this, like, really, like, deathly serious conversations and, and dialogue, but it's all about these superhero conventions that only matter if you live in superhero land, which obviously none of us do. And it's not that I'm, like, averse to delving into the fictional politics of the worlds or whatever. Like, I read plenty of stupid space politics nonsense in my time and enjoyed it. But I think something like The Tick ends up sort of being so much more meaningful in a weird roundabout way where, you know, characters like, you know, the, the protagonist, you know, have their issues and foibles and they're human in a recognizable way. And it can sort of... You know, say a little something, you know, may not be incredibly profound or anything, but it's saying something that has some reality and humanity to it beyond just I'm making a political statement about a political issue that only exists in a world of superheroes, which why do I care? Well, the deck kind of has this nostalgia for like two different eras of recent American history. The first one, of course, is the deck is like throwback to 1950s superheroes, this lantern-jawed do-gooders who 
bunch of bad guys and then shouts off some kind of amusing quip about it. But the second era it's looking back to is Death Wish era 1970s, which is high crime, which is basically the same thing that the Daredevil series is looking back to, of high crime New York, where it's it's a rat hole and it's all breaking down and the only thing you can do is get out a gun and start shooting bad guys yourself. The tech is basically just this 1950s superhero put into the 1970s high crime world, but as a 21st century TV show. Just as an aside, I still find it's hilarious that Daredevil, the TV show, is fighting crime in modern day Hell's Kitchen. (laughs) Yes, yes. They had to invent this whole alien invasion thing just to make it halfway plausible because, holy crap, that's not Hell's Kitchen of the day. <laughs> um, okay, one thing I really appreciate with both shows, The Tick, One Punch Man, is they really touch on the how is it to be a regular person in a world with superheroes and villains, you know, the villains too, because like the villains are the ones who fuck shit up. I love Arthur's, I guess you could say origin story, his episodes and stuff like that, being that his father was crushed to death by the hero's vehicle and then he watches all the heroes die and then the baddie eats his ice cream you know like just all of the horrible shit that you would see all the time as a bystander and in the tick they do really well by showing what the bystanders have to go through in a world full of superhero people and weird ass green shit that could possibly be on the ground that could give you cancer and or powers you don't know you know like and in One Punch Man, while of course it focuses way more on the heroes and they are heroes, you know, you have that scene where the city is destroyed and the people are pissed off, are riled into a kind of a mob chanting against One Punch Man about the fact that their shit is gone, you know, and their lives might have been saved, of course, but they still have to pick up the pieces. And I like that these worlds kind of, they're really on the ground when it comes to superhero actions, you know, like in the DC and Marvel universe, you know, whole cities can be fucking destroyed. Like the people who are on the ground, they're just there for you to watch be horrified, you know, for you to see it be like, oh, this really matters and stuff like that. But uh, you never hear about the aftermath oh well i guess in the mu universe they do have the shows but like i guess technically the plot of what's it called batman v superman hinges on that but yeah i did also didn't see that so i can't say if it actually says anything about it because it looked like it sucked so it was also uh used in, in civil war civil war basically goes look at what you did in new york and look what thor did in london and so on and okay so we have to yeah. regulate superheroes. Although, uh, the problem i always have with these sort of things is like it sort of is the same in one punch man and it sort of like goes to the swell too many times is like the superheroes save everything but stuff gets destroyed and then everybody's like ah you superheroes stop destroying everything and it's like this is you know i'm not naive about humanity but it feels like a lazily cynical reading on humanity to me it's like i'm pretty sure everyone would get that not being eaten by the uh you know whatever interdimensional monster has entered the city or the this whole entire city being crushed by a monster like i think they get it and be like good job thanks guys like yeah uh, this whole like and this is why it's more palatable than something like one punch man or something or like the tick where which are silly so i can get over it a little bit more but like in all these serious superhero movies it drives me crazy because what are you trying to say? Because it's like, uh, the people will always be ungrateful of the superheroes who save them. Like, that's what Watchmen was criticizing. Like, the stupid will to power bullshit where it's like, I'm the Ubermensch and I save humanity, but they're all fucking ungrateful plebeians. It's like, oh, fuck off. Uh, like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I thought with One Punch Man, to be perfectly honest, it was more of like, to me... I didn't think that the people were ungrateful until other people started, like... Yeah, like, in One Punch Man, it's not... It doesn't really bother me that bad. A, because... Yeah, yeah. There there are other people, like, stewing the pot, and it's kind of played as a joke, so, like, it doesn't bother me. But in all these other superhero movies, it's like, eh, this is... I don't know. It it, it just... You're inventing conflict that I don't think would be there, which, I mean, again, it's like, why am I discussing this? They're superheroes. No, I actually really agree with you when it comes to the more serious storylines for two reasons. One, because it's all from the, the point of view of the heroes 
And so it's like, oh, we could have done more. You know, we ruined these lives while we were saving lives. We could have done more. You know what I mean? And I don't really like that idea of humanity either being, I think most people would be like, well, we're still alive. We can pick up the pieces, you know. I mean, the tick, the tick just straight up just is like, you know, this is stuff that people experience. On the, nobody seems to be ungrateful about the heroes, you know. They, yeah, and I really they like just, that the show. They just have to go through their lives like every now and then something horrific kind of happens and then a hero comes and stops it from being more horrific and it's like, okay, I'm going to keep going from there. I thought One Punch Man, it was less about people being shit and more about how there's always that one guy who's kind of a shit. (laughs) No, I, I agree. And also, you know, and it's not like everyone on Earth wants to indulge in a wanton power fantasy from time to time. I'm not going to take that away from anyone because, you know, sometimes you just need that. But what I like about both of these is like, you know, there's the sort of become famous or I guess famous in anime circles, which is not very famous. But, you know, there's the episode of One Punch Man where the guy he's fighting is like, how did you become so strong? And he's like, oh, I, you know, I do 100 sit-ups. I go running every day. Like, it's very silly. And same with thing with like Arthur and the Tick. Like Arthur is not is like superior. He's like a fucked up guy. He's got a lot of problems, but like he's doing the right thing. In neither case, because One Punch Man makes a complete joke out of it and makes it very silly. And the Tick, a it makes it silly, but also it's like you know he's just kind of a normal guy who who does the right thing and therefore becomes a superhero, which is kind of like yeah, it's nice. But in both cases, it's sort of it rejects sort of like the more like superiority complex aspect of superheroes, which is not just that, you know, you're powerful and all, all this stuff, which is like fine, but it takes away this angle that's like, I am intrinsically better than everyone else. And you should like acknowledge and respect that. And, oh, if, you yeah. don't, and if you don't, you're like an ungrateful shit. And, and that's the same thing with Saitama. Like he doesn't, what I like about the show is it is it acknowledges in a joking way that he's like sort of, he's sort of a selfish adult. He's not a bad person, but like he's sort of a, like a little bit he's a little daft and he's he acknowledges it's like yeah i kind of do this for myself and so it's not like this like weird fascistic bullshit where you know the ungrateful masses should like respect their like you know physical and mental superiors i like that both shows kind of like get away from that a little bit oh um saitama in one punch man he's basically like a pathetic unemployed single man what he does, he eats, sleeps, watches TV. Every now and then he goes out to run errands. That's like that's like the schedule of an unemployed man. And the only difference is he sometimes fights monsters in between. Yeah. And actually, the cynical view of society that's prevalent in One Punch Man, it's basically the complaint of an unemployed person. Why can't they see my talents? Why can't they see how great I am? And he is literally the greatest person in the world. He's the strongest person in the world. But no one recognizes this. No one knows who he is, and the hero association just keeps trying to crush him underfoot. But even despite that, his character is kind of like this idealized version of the unemployed guy, because he doesn't need society anyway. He just minds his own business and keeps saving the world. He also kind of needs to be such a complete fuck-up, and a guy with such emotional issues because in the first episode he's extremely good and he's also very bored you know he's no longer getting any joy from saving the world and he needs that because those are the real conflicts that he has the times when he's up against a monster or fighting anything you know he's doing extremely well he jokes about these scenes are often that he's so good at it he's not really paying attention like he finally kills a monster just because he remembers that he got the date wrong and he actually needs to go to the store to get groceries. And so he no longer has time to, you know, bait the monster or anything like that. But his his personal failings cause him, for example, when he tests at the Hero Association, he gets perfect marks in all the physical stuff. And he gets terrible marks in everything else. And that's what makes him such a low-ranked hero. So it gives him something to struggle against. It gives him something to try to overcome. Because when aliens show up, it's just a play day for him. It's it's absolutely not a problem. His only problems are dealing with other people. Yeah. You know, going back to what we were talking about with, like, the bringing in the secondary character thing. So that's where bringing in uh, Genos, his, his sidekick, is, uh, like, a really smart choice. Because there you have someone who is, like, sort of more the, the straight and narrow classic hero. And they sort of abet each other's faults and, and worldviews and, you know, bounce off each other in a satisfied way. And it prevents the characters from being too staid, and they sort of, you know, 
change each other a little bit and uh, that aspect is sort of nice because it you know it, it makes the characters they're not completely static i mean saitama is pretty static but he's still you know there's, there's a little growth going on there and like i think jesse said it is sort of it's a nice reflection of what in a comical sense rather than like a you know serious bitter sense of i think what everyone's sort of you know, no no one, like, very few people anyway, like, exactly, their life does not pan out exactly as they'd like. You know, no one, like, fulfills their 100% potential the way they like, more or less. Like, that's just, and part of, like, being an adult is accepting that and so forth. But there's still sort of that little piece inside of you that's, like, something incredible would happen. I would just, you know, I'd beat the guy. Uh, and so it's a, it's sort of like a nice reflection of that sort of underemployed slash unemployed, like, NUI people experience. Well, I think that one thing that I really like about the Saitama Genos relationship, because they both do have arcs and do experience growth in the show, but it's very subtle. And it wasn't until like the last couple episodes that I really like was like, oh, where Saitama, there was the time where he did kind of want to be recognized. But then when he realized that it would fuck up the reputations of other heroes, it was like it wasn't worth it to him. You know, so he just sloughed that off. And also how he just like, he sloughs off this, the, the anger of people. But it was Junos who stops him from, say, arguing with the people in the street, for instance. And like, just kind of recognizing that he didn't need somebody else to tell him he was good at what he does, because he is, you know, like, he doesn't need to be recognized for being good at the things he does. While at the same time, he, is just really super kind and recognizes the efforts of other people. You know, like, he recognizes Genos's potential, you know, even though he doesn't have any, like, secret lessons to give him. <laughs> and he recognizes, what, the Bicycle Man? Uh, you know, yeah, like, uh, Moomin Rider. Moomin Rider. Moomin Rider. He recognizes Moomin Rider's intense efforts to be as good as he possibly can be, even though that isn't, like, as good as, say any of the class S heroes or one punch man himself. I, I really enjoyed their little uh, camaraderie at the end, you know, like buying each other food and like just chatting about, you know, stuff. That was really cool. Like, yeah, it's, it's um, a, it's a sweet little friendship they have. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and again, like, you know, it's like, I think the lessons that he learns, like when, um, what that pretty boy kills all the aliens who were just like, on the ship and it was their job because evil must be destroyed and Genos recognizes that he used to be that way before he met Saitama the sense that there were a set of absolutes to follow you know which is not Saitama's thing he's more just looking for a really good fight <laughs> to, to have fun and I don't know. I just really liked their little bitty growths throughout, even though at the end, you know, of course, it wasn't huge, but it was it was still there. Like, I mean, like, I guess in the tick, uh, it's more prevalent, the growth of Arthur. He goes from being unsure into being very sure about what he wants to do. So, yeah, I mean, the tick is more like a more uh, traditional dramatic, dramatically inclined show. Yeah. Yeah. One Punch Man has dramatic moments, but it's really sort of a not completely episodic, but given that truly like episodic TV and even anime is like, yeah, it's kind of like, unless it's a slice of life, like it's kind of like not as quite as prevalent. It's, but it's pretty close to that. Like there's, you know, there's, there's plot beats and growth, but you're looking at kind of like little independent stories. Whereas the tick more like a traditional contemporary TV show that's like very serialized and has a long arc or as long as six episodes can give you and stuff like that. Well, as far as Dick goes, I mean, there have been previous versions of the Dick. There was another live-action TV show, a cartoon show, and several comic book series. And I like this latest version of Dick the most because there is a story, as you mentioned. There's actually something to hang the jokes on because the previous versions of the Dick, they, um, I mean, it's weird, it's funny, but they all kind of, like, petered out after a while. They never really found a central thing that the story was about. But this one, this latest tick, the Amazon tick, they're going somewhere. And because they're going somewhere, the jokes are, um, they're not so zany or, how can I put this? The jokes are funnier, basically, because there is a story for the jokes to actually revolve around. 
I think one of the big differences there between both the earlier versions of the Tick and One Punch Man is the choice to make the sidekick the main character. Like, Arthur is obviously in the previous Ticks, but he's just an accountant who one day shows up to work in a full moth costume. You know, he doesn't have a whole arc about becoming a superhero. He's just a guy who decides one day, I'm going to be a superhero. And he gets fired from his job, and then he meets the Tick. That, that's how the setup works. But here... He's the main character, he has a lot of issues, the series deals with those issues at length, and they kind of center them. And The Tick, because he's such an absurd character, because he's a character who's always without a, a backstory of any coherency, he's pushed to the sideline a little bit, and it's about how Arthur deals with this incredible Tick character who's dropped into his life. If The One Punch Man was a more serious series, it would probably be the show about Genus, because he's the guy who has all these problems and issues. But of course it isn't, it's about Saitama. Uh, okay, just throwing this out there. So who thinks that the tick is something Arthur manifested into reality somehow? Because I think that's where this show is going. Yeah, they're, they're, I, they kind I, of hinted at it. Yeah, I think they, didn't yeah. they reject it, though, in the second episode or something. They rejected that he was a hallucination. That's right. what they rejected. But if he's real, that doesn't mean that he isn't from Arthur's mind somehow. Because there's yeah. a sort of flashback to Arthur as a child, apparently hearing the Tick's voice on like a chord or something. So it could yeah. be still that some sort of superhero thing happened and something from Arthur's subconscious became real. That's where I yeah. think it's probably going, which I think is really interesting. I mean, compared to like other versions of the Tick, it really was just like a dude who was, you know, the lantern jaw guy with the quips that were ridiculous. And there was no need to know any kind of origin. But the idea that this person manifested a hero is kind of neat. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. I don't know. It's neat, but I think maybe it belongs in a different show or franchise. Feels a little... I kind of like Tick is just like this silly man who exists yeah. and like fucks up people's lives. I think that's more fitting to me <laughs> than like this weird psychoanalytic angle. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry, I was cutting you off. Yeah, so, sorry, one thing that's, that's very consistent about the Tick in previous in iterations is that he does not have an answer for who he is. There's an episode of the previous live action series with Patrick Warburton where Arthur has to identify Tick's name and Tick doesn't know what it is and Tick doesn't know anything about himself other than the fact he's the Tick mm. and he can barely remember the past. They try to find someone to identify him and that person fails and he's not on any records or anything. So what he is is not exactly clear. Like, one line I really liked in the Amazon show is they ask if he's wearing a costume, and he just takes it as an existential question about what the meaning of life is. To him, it's not a question that could be answered. Mm. The complete absence of a background for the tick, to me, is one of the appealing things about him, because he's kind of defying the concept of an origin. Is that a costume? Maybe. It sort of looks like it kind of come off. It never comes off at any point. Why does he have antenna? Yeah, his feelers, like, actually feel, yeah. In the cartoon series, his antenna are actually removed, and it hurts his balance, and he falls over. What does that mm. mean? Mm. And while um, I agree with Jesse that this is the best version of The Tick, I think the previous versions of The Tick have some very good elements, especially in the animated series. One of the best episodes is called Tick versus the Proto-Clown, which is a bit misleading because most of the episode is Tick in space, just floating along, examining his own psychology. He turns in on himself to ask existential questions about what he means. So he sees an embodiment of his, his subconscious, and his brain, which is flying around him, because this is a cartoon, says, you only get one question to ask your, the subconscious about yourself, so, you know, make it good. And then he goes up and he says, how are you? And so a big <laughs> thumbs up emerges, and he says, look, I'm feeling fine. <laughs> There's this incredibly upbeat and optimistic and bullish reaction to everything about the tick is really appealing to me. And while Jesse said he's kind of like a 50s superhero, I think he's also very much Adam West's Batman, kind of pushed to an, an extreme in some ways. Well, that's true. I mean, he's the tick. A tick is not a heroic animal. It's a parasite. <laughs> But you know what? One Punch Man, it's also had a convoluted production history. It started out as uh, just this um, webcomic this one guy was putting out on his website. And if you ever look it up, his drawings were really awful. <laughs> really friggin' awful. He's still doing them. But then another guy, a professional manga guy, started redrawing them. And it looks a lot nicer. And that version is the one that the anime was made from. And the anime, it's 
way, way behind on what's going on in One Punch Man because there's this one major character who I think was only in a cameo in one episode, which kind of too bad. But in that case, it's something to look forward to in the second season. Oh, what character, if you don't mind my asking? I mean, um, is it a spoiler? Uh, no, not really. It's like uh, this one woman, I think they showed her in one scene. She's like in a fur coat or something surrounded by men in... Um, oh, in yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, okay. She becomes a yeah, yeah, yeah. Character. I remember this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Later on. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And she has like one line in the whole first season. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now I remember. This, this woman, mysterious woman with all caps. It also kind of gags based on the uh, art style of the original comic carried through to the adaption comic and then the anime. I'm mostly thinking about one of my favorite moments in the series, which is okay. You know, when he's at the very near the end, he's fighting the final alien boss. The guy has a big long speech about how he's incredibly strong and you get that completely supremely unimpressed, but also very simply drawn face on Saitama. Yeah, I mean, the original webcomic is sort of interesting because it's like, very, I was like, the, the guy is not a uh, technically talented artist, but he ha- he does have like good visual sense, I think, which is I think why it ended up you know becoming something that's not just buried on the internet. You, you can sort of see what he's going for, and it makes it interesting. I'm gonna look them up now. I haven't actually looked them up. Uh, one thing I appreciate is actually something that's missing from both shows. There's no bank robberies. I know this is a <laughs> weird thing to, to fixate on, but a lot of times in superhero stories, whenever they need to introduce a superhero, they show them stopping a bank robbery. It's like the iconic thing for a superhero to do, to stop someone from stealing money. And I'm like, that's it? That's what being a superhero is for? It's for protecting money? And I think that was in Superman Returns and a whole bunch of well, it's, it's too many to name. Spider-Man, whatever. That's the traditional first crime stop with a superhero. But I do like that for both things, their mission is for protecting people. They're actually protecting lives, not property, which I appreciate. And yeah, all lives point. matter. Like, the baby that was actually a puppy, and everybody's like, he saved a dog! <laughs> Sorry, continue. I think it would be a bit weird in One Punch Man for people to be stopping crimes like bank robberies because they lean very heavy and very early on to the idea that superheroes are fighting monsters. There's monsters who live under the sea, there's monsters who live in the earth, monsters of the air, space monsters, monsters created by evil scientists. I mean, how often does Saitama ever face off against a human? You know, he even fights a gorilla at one point. So it, it seems like a very grounded human kind of villainy that the series is mostly absent from. I love the people that Saitama has turned away from evil, like that little bitty moment where the former evil folk are looking at the TV at the ads and you've got that genetically engineered gorilla and his creator, like, I don't know, cooking a hot pot (laughs) and like just like the other guy like applying for a job and... (laughs) Yeah, we haven't really talked about it, but the, all the little villains in One Punch Man are really, they're very fun and they're very, you know, they only are there for, you know, episode at two max most of the time, but they all have very recognizable looks and personalities. You know, they, they all feel like they could be like part of a proper rogues gallery, but the way the show works is, you know, they get punched once and they're gone. So it's sort of fun that way that it's, it still commits to like creating these memorable antagonists, even though. Their time on this earth is probably going to be short-lived. Yeah, I, I particularly like two things. One, when they introduce the um, the air people, the kind of with the wings, it's like, oh, this is going to be a whole new thing, and then they immediately are destroyed before they can do anything. Like they felt like they were they're every bit as detailed as like the sea people, who there was a whole arc for, but they're gone like boom. And another thing I like, I don't know how intentional it was, though I think it's intentional, is that in the first episode, every single person Saitama fights is not wearing pants. Oh, I didn't notice that. (laughs) Some of them are wearing underwear, but none of them are wearing pants. Weirdly specific thing to to put in there, but it's in there. This is so funny. I didn't even notice that. (laughs) Well, there's one thing not to like, which is that one superhero who was a rapist. Oh, yeah. Oh, Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Prison, yeah. prison, whatever, yeah. yeah. Yep. And actually, you know what? In the comic book, there was even more about this person, about being the prison rapist or something, which I'm pretty glad <laughs> they did not put oh, in the anime. God. That Yeah, that I felt, okay, so the uh, gay panic kind of jokes for me didn't fly. It's like, mm. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's like super, super common in anime. It's just yeah. Like, it's one of those things like you sort of accept, but it's like, why am I accepting this? I guess it's like, eh. yes, it, it's very bad. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's worth mentioning because it is, it is there. It's a lot of shows. Even like Samurai Champloo kind of does that. Like a lot of shows, like yeah, have like the like sexually aggressive bara gay man. It's a little, little iffy, everybody, and a lot iffy actually. But thankfully, it's it's just that one episode, and it's like part of an episode. So well, and Shake then it there well was as you will. there was also the uh, end of show moment where the two guys were in the hospital, and he showed up to run them off, like you know, with his love. So right, right, it was also yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's there. It's indisputable. But yeah, that's a wider. That is a wider Japan thing i guess issue social problem whatever you want to call it and it's yeah because like a, there's also anime about specifically about same-sex relationships yeah <laughs> although those are i guess it's like the difference is like um most because i mean you have like there's very niche actually gay anime and manga and all that and then there's like bl and all that which is about same-sex relationships, but it's not it's targeted towards women. So, yeah. or, or or reverse, like you're at Yuri, which is targeted, uh, which can go in either direction. But like, there's a whole subgenre of Yuri which is targeted towards men, um, etc. It's it's so. kind of like gay and lesbian porn, which is actually made for heterosexual people. It's basically a fantasy for the straight people. It's not about the actual lives of gay or lesbian Japanese people. That's why you should all watch Yuri Kumarashi, everybody. It's actually Wait. about that, and it's really good. Wait, now I have to look. Th- what is it called? Yuri, Yuri Kumarashi. Uh, it's about lesbian bear. Bear thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? It's, yeah, it's lesbian bear queue. store. It's literally queue. what it's called. I would also co-sign the endorsement of Ikuhara's delightfully absurd lesbian bear series where they build a giant wall to keep the bears out from the lesbians, but the bears come over anyway. And, um... Um, it's a completely, completely bizarre series, but it's wonderful. Oh my god, what is that called? They, they added it to Crunchyroll recently, right? I think. Or did they? I think, yeah, because okay, they're doing all the like, merger with Funimation now. I think they recently added it, at least in the States. So y'all don't have an excuse to watch it now. Okay, Yurikuma Arashi is definitely on Crunchyroll. I just added it because that looks amazing. We're getting way off topic, so we should probably... Yeah, yeah sorry, too. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, so going back to the thing, um, the Dick and One Punch Man for comedies, they're a lot bloodier than I was expecting. There's like so much <laughs> death. The Dick even, I mean, he never kills anyone, but he causes the death of all those gangsters or something just by walking into the warehouse or whatever it was. Oh my god. Well, Overkill just literally slices people up. I love that scene in the alley where Arthur is just standing there while Overkill is just murdering around him, just murdering. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I mean, even watch One Punch Man, like it's not. I mean, part of it's because they're fighting kaiju monsters, basically. But there's none of this, like. Oh, I guess there is at the end with the spaceship because those guys are not monsters. But when you're actually fighting the monster proper, it's not like, I'm going to defeat the monster and then we're going to become friends. It's like, nope. Saitama punches the monster and the monster explodes. Like, <laughs> he's done. That is it for him. And sometimes, I guess, they get reduced to mini monsters. But with these shows, like, they're so absurd. It's just like, why not? You know? I have to say, I don't know why. You know, I, I have spoken about my gore cringiness, especially when we watched Fist of the North Star. And, like, I don't know why the gore in One Punch Man, which was pretty visceral, even if it was, like, pink and green and stuff, didn't bother me quite as much. I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's not, it's like, it's not gratuitous. Like, Fist of the North Star is by design, incredibly gratuitous. Like, that's its entire selling point. In One Punch Man, like, the violence is just kind of, like, happens. It doesn't stop and, like, slow down the camera and, like, salivate over the violence. It's just, like, there. So, yeah, I know that. 
they do linger sometimes on the corpses that are left behind. The, yeah, occasionally, but yeah. it's not. It didn't never strike me as like excessive personally. Saitama did eat that one guy. <laughs> he was a seaweed monster, and in the next yes. scene, he's making some seaweed dish. <laughs> Where'd you get all the extra seaweed? Uh, on sale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of the good. The good aspect of these shows being like just over the top, so they can kind of like go to these weird, dark places and only barely acknowledge them. But anyway. <laughs> Does anyone else have pressing comments, or should we move on to the recommendations and so forth? I'm good. I've said all my pieces. Yeah. All right. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting how these shows construct heroism a little bit. Like in One Punch Man, for example, Moomin Rider, who is completely ineffectual, is nonetheless portrayed as very heroic in his intentions. Whereas a lot of the top-class superheroes, like Metal Knight in particular, are far more cynical about what they're trying to do, and the only difference that separates them is that they're very powerful. Whereas in The Tick, there's not as much criticism of the intentions of the heroes, because, you know, Overkill and the Superman-type character, Superion, are basically on the side of right. But um, there's a little more ambivalence about what exactly motivates them. Like with Overkill, he doesn't seem to be motivated by anything particularly noble, but The Tick is, and to a certain extent, Arthur is. I think that's kind of an interesting element there. That, that was my last thought. Okay. Uh, well, um, I'm going to extemporize a bit, but um, One Punch Man's Saitama, he has anime predecessors. He's not the first pathetic, unemployed, single-man protagonist in anime. The first one, of course, or the most prominent one that you might know of, is uh, the guy from Welcome to the NHK, who is a gigantic shut-in. And... I don't think these protagonists started coming out until, like, what, the late 90s or something? Which I guess is just a reflection of the economic situation in Japan and difficulty of finding full-time and worthwhile work for 20-somethings. There's, like, a lot of overqualified and underemployed people, like Satan and the devil as a part-timer, which it's not something that's unknown over here either. Although... One reaction to this economic wasteland is just complete retreat into fantasy and just pure escapism, and which you can find in all the anime that's coming out now, just about living in a role-playing game, living in a fantasy world, living beloved by girls for absolutely no reason, living back in high school again, living back as a kid again, and just going back to when things were better, this idea of getting what you're supposed to get which is an expression of a certain type of wounded masculinity. But One Punch Man, it's basically a reaction to this type of powerlessness. One reaction is complete rejection. Like, screw you, I don't need you. I'm awesome, I'm cool, and I don't care if you don't see that, because I am literally the greatest person in the world. Yeah, I think there's a really good... I don't know what exactly we'd pair it with, but I feel like... There's a really good episode that could happen of something like Welcome to the NHK with some Western movie about, like, wounded, late capitalist, injured masculinity. I think that's the thing that needs to happen. But, yeah. And it's also sort of interesting because, you know, there's on one hand, we have all these fantasy, like, just complete escapism stuff, like you mentioned. But we're also kind of seeing reactions to that escapism that sort of deal with the line between healthy escapism and sort of more destructive retreat. Like two seasons ago, we had Relife. This season, we have a show that I really like, Recovery of an MMO Junkie. They both sort of deal with this aspect of this really unhealthy work environment and economic environment, destroyed people's desire to like interact with the world, but also trying to find a way, at least, you know, to to interact with it and you know live a life of social life and all these things. Sort of trying to find some degree of solace in a pretty bad uh, economic environment. So it's yeah. sort of interesting to see, like, the trend sort of turning a little more towards, or even, what's that show? All You Need is a Little Sister. Like, even that show, even the show about Love Nirimoto has a little bit of self-reflective commentary on why, why am I, why are people doing this? And, like, where might it lead them and sort of to not reject, it's not, it's not saying, like, ah, anime is evil for you, get out. But, you know, sort of like what is driving some of these more extreme examples, escapism, and sort of like how do you balance that with actually living in the world in a meaningful way? And so it's sort of interesting to see this this kind of circle of commentary happening. You know, like one thing that I'm kind of intrigued about because this commentary on the neat 
class in Japan has existed now, you know, like, well, since I started college and a little bit before, because I'm pretty sure that that particular generation is what we are basically, you know, over there. Yeah, um, I mean, in Japan, it's a little worse because you had the lost decade in the 90s. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Let me let me rephrase that. Same age group as yeah. those of us who are speaking to each other at this moment, you know, in Japan. And when the commentary, at least in the anime that I saw, first started coming out, you know, these were people who were like right out of college, 20-somethings. And then a couple of years ago, I watched Princess Jellyfish, and that was more, aside from the main character, those characters were all in their early 30s. And I'm intrigued to see if this particular class continues, like how pop culture is going to continue to respond to that class. Like you said, now there's more like hopeful escapism going on rather than this depressing like commentary about like in welcome to the nhk where he's like trying to find himself or whatever and or oh what was that one anime where the dude the rich dude collected all the neats together and made them like gave them money and made them try to come up with an idea to solve japan's problems what was that called eden of the east thank you eden of the east which was much more like a how do we solve this kind of issue thing than a, you know, and now it seems to be going more into uh, less commentary, more like farcical kind of stuff. And, or even like Princess Jellyfish and also like Devil is a Part-Timer, where you've got underemployed and also unemployed, like Lucifer is unemployed. I believe that the hero even says, don't touch me. I don't want to get your neat all over me. You know, like, I'm intrigued to see how culture continues to respond to an under or unemployed class of citizens as they continue to age. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it is moving in like a slightly interesting direction. So that it's neither, it's not vilifying neatdom, which I would think is wrong. Cause there's like a lot of social and economic reasons why it's happening, but it's also, I think there's just enough works also coming out that are not, you know, they're not celebrating it. It's not necessarily like that. Your personal, failure that's not why you're ending up this way but you also still need to recognize that there are very unhealthy aspects to living like this or completely retreating from the real world and so there's thoughtful shows coming out that i think engage with it in an intelligent way in a sympathetic and humane way so anyway uh, i'm kind of getting depressed at the idea of what anime is going to look like in like 10 years or something because <laughs> then it's going to be like 40 something protagonists learning <laughs> about their pensions and <laughs> or not having pensions. Well, you know. What it's going to be about is the kids of Neats. Yes. That's it. The children of Neat. Yeah, it will be like the children of Neat or the 20-something protagonists who befriend the 50-year-old Neat next door who has too many statuettes of, like, anime girls in his room and shit. <laughs> oh, dear. Everything's great, everybody. It's coming. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's let's uh, let's go to order. Uh, what do you recommend? These two properties, Ember. Absolutely, they were both incredibly well done. They're both very funny. The protagonists are both fun. They have a really fun take on heroism in the superhero vein, and the cast of characters around the main characters are also fantastic. Like just these little bitty storylines for them, are just as fun. I absolutely recommend both shows, for sure. Cool, cool, Jesse. Well, yes, definitely, I agree. I like both these shows. They're pretty entertaining, they're funny, and I'm a big comic book guy, but, well, actually, not so much anymore, but I was, and I do appreciate the way it's playing with all these superhero cliches. Uh, I mean, the superhero story, it's always, it's an eternal fistfight, basically. It just one guy punching another guy forever and ever for like 40 issues. <laughs> but uh, both these shows, they found a way to do that, a new way to do that, which I do appreciate. So yeah, definitely check them both out. As for myself, uh, yeah, I would agree. I recommend both these properties. I think they're quite good. The Tick, I think, is, you know, it's just, you know, it's only six episodes, you know, each half hour. So it's it's just really kind of condensed little story, but it manages to, you know, have arcs and be very funny in this short amount of time. And I think it's worthwhile in that respect. One Punch Man, you can watch it and enjoy it. And I think pretty much anyone can watch it and enjoy it. I would, I'm going to say it's, I'm short of loving it. I think it 
kind of returns to the same joke well too many times, but nevertheless, it is very entertaining, and the animation is really superb, uh, really excellent animation work. And I also will use this opportunity. Uh, there's another work by the same web comic author, which also got adapted, called Mob Psycho 100. And, you know, any issues I have with One Punch Man in terms of sort of the Lucy, uh, Lucy aspects of the story or the sort of sometimes repetitive jokes really... I felt were solved in Mob Psycho 100. I felt really interesting characters, really interesting art style, but it also still has that sort of same comedic sensibility that is really funny in One Punch Man. So I highly recommend seeking that out. And with that, William. Well, I would agree with Tom that One Punch Man has basically one joke, which it repeats over and over. But it's something I really love about the show because they find a lot of different ways to tell that joke. And it also builds as the show progresses, to a certain anticipation of the joke. They'll delay the moment that you know inevitably is coming, so it can feel satisfying, even cathartic, when it is released. I thought it was an excellent series. I watched it when it first premiered, and I loved it from start to finish. So I would recommend it a lot. I think it's, of the anime of the last couple of years, it's one of the most accessible titles, especially because it's about superheroes, which is such a huge part of our cultural landscape, entirely independent of anything from Japan. It was the kind of show, the moment I saw it, I knew it would get a release on American television, which I think it did, and it could get a lot of people who have never watched anime before to watch anime. As for The Tick, I've always liked this character. I watched the cartoon back in the 90s when I was a kid. I didn't watch the live-action series from the early 2000s until this podcast, because that actually didn't air here for like a decade, for some obscure reason. But I really enjoyed this latest Amazon Prime version of The Tick. And I also think, even if you haven't watched any of the other ticks, it is a very funny riff on, again, a very familiar genre. So I'd also recommend that. I think these are two strong shows. And as far as the live-action tick, while it'll probably never happen, if they ever found a way to incorporate Chairface Chippendale, I would be very happy. <laughs> That's one of his antagonists from the original, from the animated series and from the, the comic. He's a man who has a chair for a head. And that's somehow never actually relevant to whatever he is he's trying to do, which is just very funny to me. And Amber, you can take us out with a little... All right. So, first of all, let me let shill. You can find us on Podcastle in the Sky at WordPress.com, where sometimes we put up content beyond just podcasts. It's rare and it's a beautiful thing, but it happens. You can also tweet us at at Flying Podcastle. And actually, you guys are on the up and up with keeping that up to date. So if you want to reach us, tweeting is probably the best. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes. I know it's kind of what everybody says, but it's true. Like reviews are great. And also the reviews that we have had basically made us all go like, oh, my God, everybody, somebody likes us. And it was fun. And you can find us on Stitcher and on YouTube as well. And for our next show, we are going to get cute and watch the critically acclaimed children's show, The Worst Witch, which you can find on Netflix. And we're going to pair it with Little Witch Academia. So two shows about girls going through witchy school. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yes. Bye. So long. So long, farewell. I forget. Uh, sound music. Uh, sound of music. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Okay. Alrighty. All right. All right. So long. Bye. Good to talk to you guys. Bye. <laughs> All right, yeah. Adios. Bye. <laughs>